Jeremiah 46.2, you see that on the outline. If you find map 3 on your outline, you see that Jeremiah 46.2 is also there on the outline. Pete, do you have uh, Jeremiah 46.2 open in front of you? No, I can't find it. Can't find Jeremiah, okay. God, do you have it? Uh, no, but... What are we starting with? Jeremiah 46, verse 2. Okay. Okay. I have that. Pete has it. Would you read it, Pete? shall enter by way of the porch of the gate from outside and Jeremiah 46 verse 2 huh? Jeremiah 46 verse 2 that's what I'm reading oh shit I'm a deacon <laughs> Scott do you have Jeremiah 46 too uh, yeah but um, I, I'll have it too I have the sight read I got it I don't have the English oh you've got the Hebrew okay yeah <laughs> To Egypt concerning the army of Pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the Euphrates River at Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now that verse is referring to what is uh, described or mapped out there on map number three. The fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, is the year 605-604 B.C. This is another one of those dates which marks a great shift in the history of Judah and the nations. You'll notice from your map the route of Pharaoh Necho's march to the Euphrates is northward once again. This is the second time he has marched north to that region. He marched there in 609 after he had slain Josiah at the Battle of Megiddo. That is also described on map number two or portrayed on map number two. But in 605, on his second uh, invasion of Judah, he moves through his buffer territories, both Judah and Assyria, to a showdown at Carchemish with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar alone this time leads the Babylonian army. In 609, he had been joined by his aging father, but in 605, his father is too ill to campaign with him in the west, and the Babylonian forces under Nebuchadnezzar decimate the Egyptians under Pharaoh Necho and drive that retreating army, you can see from your map, from Carchemish to Hamath, where the coup de grace was administered by Nebuchadnezzar. Necho fled back to Egypt, and with him all the ghosts of Egyptian kings and armies who had aspired to dominate that little piece of real estate at the crossroads of the world the keystone of the nations, the bridge between Africa and Asia, that little piece of real estate called the promised land of Canaan. Never again would an Egyptian pharaoh 
control a royal Judah and Jerusalem. The shift in the world powers moves from Africa to Asia and eventually to Europe. The Gentile world powers from the four points of the compass march and countermarch across the land of promise. March and countermarch until the dawn of the fifth monarchy, Daniel's fifth monarchy, the everlasting kingdom of God. And in that narrative interface, in that narrative interface between Daniel's fifth monarchy and the kingdoms of the world, the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. 605 B.C. is the second slap upside the head of Jehoiakim with Realpolitik. First, it was Egypt's Nico in 609, map 2, making him, that is Jehoiakim, the puppet on a string. Now, it is Babylonian, Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar in 605, making him, that is Jehoiakim, once more abject vassal to a mighty imperial overlord. Nebuchadnezzar's first siege of Jerusalem nets him treasure and talent. It is recorded in Daniel chapter 1, and if you keep your finger in Jeremiah 46, 2, let's take a look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, which is also echoed in 2 Kings 24, verse 1a. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. And Clay, do you have it? Yeah, I have it. Would you read it, please? Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, you may notice if you hold uh, Daniel 1, 1 and Jeremiah 46, 2, uh, together that there is a difference between the third year in the reign of Jehoiakim and the fourth year in the reign of Jehoiakim. But these are referring to the very same events and the very same years, name of the year 605-604 B.C. Now, if you're concerned about the potential contradiction, I refer, to, to, I refer you to our lecture on Daniel 1 last year, which is recorded and also on the seminary website. It's entitled The Beast Stirs, and we explain why that difference is there. But there is no contradiction in the biblical narrative, even though there's an apparent difference in the year of the reign of the kings. But Daniel 1, of course, is a description of when Nebuchadnezzar carries Daniel off to captivity with his three friends. That is also what is happening in the background of Jeremiah 46, verse 2. So Jeremiah is also a contemporary of that deportation and capture of Daniel and his friends and others. Babylon then has snatched the Syro-Palestinian prize from Egypt in 605 and pushed Egypt's borders from the banks of the Euphrates to the sands of the Sinai Desert. 
That is, Egypt had controlled that whole territory from 609 to 605. And now with Nebuchadnezzar's conquest and invasion of Jerusalem, capture of Daniel, he pushes Egypt all the way back to the sands of the Sinai Peninsula. Babylon the Great now rules Judah with a wily and devious Jehoiakim waiting, waiting, Jehoiakim waiting for the right moment to bring back the glory days of his father, Josiah, and an independent, an independent, a once again independent kingdom of the Jews. Now that brings us to map number five, which details the route of Nebuchadnezzar's second invasion of Judah in the year 597 B.C., and the second siege of Jerusalem, which results in the deportation of the prophet Ezekiel. Now, if you'll turn to Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 2, Ezekiel 1, verse 2. Do you have it, Harriet? Would you like to read it for us? On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzzai, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. Thank you. That's, that's far enough. Now, notice that that second verse describes the fifth month of the fifth year of King Jehoiakim, not King Jehoiakim. When was Jehoiakim taken into exile? He was taken into exile in this year 597 as a result of the second invasion of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Now notice that Ezekiel places his call that the word of the Lord came to him in the fifth year of the exile of Jehoiakim, which would be the year 592-591 B.C., in other words, Ezekiel hangs his identity in exile along with Jehoiakim's identity in exile. In fact, in two other places in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet refers to our exile. In chapter 33, verse 21, and in chapter 40, verse 1. That is, Ezekiel is identifying his exile with Jehoiakim's. He went into exile when Jehoiakim went into exile. The fifth year of Jehoiakim's exile is the fifth year of Ezekiel's exile. So that in five, so that in 605, Nebuchadnezzar captures Daniel the prophet. In 597, Nebuchadnezzar captures Ezekiel the prophet. And in all of those, he leaves Jeremiah the prophet alone. We'll have to answer why he does that uh, later on, but nonetheless, <clears throat> This gives you something to hang how these prophets came into the picture. You hang your hook, so to speak. 605, first invasion of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel goes off to captivity. 597, second invasion of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel goes off into captivity. And yet there's one more captivity to go, as we shall see. Well, this uh, provocation question... This provocation, which launched the attack of Babylon, may be suggested in 2 Kings 24-7.
we have to ask the question, what is it that provoked Nebuchadnezzar to come the second time to Jerusalem, some eight years after he had come the first time? So let's take a look at 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 7. Second Kings twenty four seven. Robert, do you have it? Yeah. Thank you. The king of Egypt did not march out from his own country again, because the king of Babylon had taken all his territory from the Wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates River. All right, now notice that in verse six, just above that seventh verse, Jehoiakim has died and has been succeeded by Jehoiakim. So we know that this verse is describing this event of 597 B.C. So why do I suggest that this verse, which talks about the king of Egypt not coming out of his country anymore, because, in fact, the king of Babylon had taken all of his territory, that that suggests why Nebuchadnezzar was provoked to invade Judah in the first place. Well, Jehoiakim appears to have joined with Egypt in an attempt to uh, regain Judah's independence from Nebuchadnezzar. Like his father, Josiah, before him, whose foolhardy attempt to bar Egypt from preventing the rise of Babylon in 609, thus jeopardizing his own life and the independence of Judah in that year, Jehoiakim tilts back to Egypt in collusion with his former suzerain, Nico II, that king who is described in verse 7 of 2 Kings 24, is Pharaoh Nico once again, even though his name is not mentioned there. And he does it in order to throw off the yoke of his current suzerain, Nebuchadnezzar. So Jehoiakim, having submitted to Nebuchadnezzar, but having submitted to Nico before, when he was enthroned after Jehoahaz was deposed in 609, Now he's playing footsie with his former suzerain once again, and he's doing that in 597 in an attempt to throw off the yoke of Babylonian supremacy. When Nebuchadnezzar places a king of his own choice on the throne of Judah in this 597 invasion, as his Babylonian chronicle tells us, it may be his own reference to the historical necessity of removing a king Egypt had placed on the throne of Judah. Remember that Jehoiakim had been placed on the throne of Judah in 609 by Egyptian king Pharaoh Necho. Again, this may be Nebuchadnezzar's own reference in the Babylonian chronicle to the necessity for removing a king Egypt had placed on the throne of Judah so that he could make a statement, so that Nebuchadnezzar could make a statement a statement with a ruler that he, as the king of Babylon, placed on that throne of Judah, namely Zedekiah in 597. For this invasion that comes in 597 that takes Ezekiel into captivity is an invasion which will cause Nebuchadnezzar to place his own hand-picked robot on the throne of Jerusalem, namely Mataniah or Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. And note, if you will, 
that Nico changes Jehoiakim's name from Eliakim when he places him on the throne and Nebuchadnezzar changes Zedekiah's name from Mataniah when he places him on the throne. And in both cases, Egypt and Babylon, Africa and Asia are interfacing, indeed interfering with the history of Judah and Jerusalem. Judah is at the center of the clash of the nations. It seems then that when Nebuchadnezzar arrives at the walls of Jerusalem in 597 B.C. to lay siege to the city that Jehoiakim the king is already dead. When Nebuchadnezzar arrives, King Jehoiakim is already dead. And Jehoiakim, his son, is on the throne in his father's place. Let's take a look at Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 19. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 19. Yes, you can, t- you can leave your th- thumb out of a uh, second. We'll get back there sooner or later. Ben, do you have it? <clears throat> Jeremiah twenty-two nineteen. He will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Thank you. Now, this is a reference to Jehoiakim's death. Notice that the prophet says that he will be buried with a donkey's burial, which is likely a note on the dishonorable death and contemptuous burial which he received. Now let's turn forward in Jeremiah to chapter 36, verse 30. Chapter 36, verse 30 of Jeremiah. Lisa, do you have it? Notice once again that his dead body will be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. A dishonorable burial for Jehoiakim. Well, why? Why was he treated so shamefully? Well, not only was his life as king a shame and an affront to Almighty God. Remember, this is the king that burns Jeremiah's scroll in contempt. Verse 23 of this 36th chapter, which we just uh, read. The people of Judah may have realized the potential shame and dishonor in Jehoiakim rebelling against Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And thus they rose up against him and assassinated him. He will be buried with a donkey's burial because he betrayed his oath to his suzerain overlord and placed the nation in danger by provoking Nebuchadnezzar to retaliate by marching on the city of Jerusalem. And in fact, this may explain the surrender of Jehoiakim to Nebuchadnezzar. Let's take a look at the note of Jehoiakim's surrender in Jeremiah 29 verse 2. Jeremiah 29, verse 2. 
which is parallel to 2 Kings 24, verse 12. But since Clay took his finger out of 2 Kings 24, we'll just look at the Jeremiah reference. (coughs) Jeremiah 29, verse 2. Do you have it there, Clay? Thank you. Go ahead. 29, verse 2. Uh, this is after King Jeconiah Good. and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs and officials of Judea and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. All right, now notice that that verse tells us that Jeconiah, which is another name for whom? Okay. Jehoiakim. It's another name for Jehoiakim. He's also called Coniah, Coniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiakim. This tells us that he and his mother, the queen mother, surrendered to the Babylonian officials or to Nebuchadnezzar in 597. Well, why did he surrender? He gave themselves up. They gave themselves up to be captives as a possible act of appeasement. An act that would dispose Nebuchadnezzar to spare Jerusalem from total destruction. After all, if we're right that Jehoiakim had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, provoking his invasion, then he didn't come with any mercy and clemency in his mind as he approached the walls of Jerusalem. What then would turn away his fierce wrath? Well, perhaps the fact that they tossed Jehoiakim's body out as he was approaching And he received the burial of a donkey as a token of an appeal for atonement and not to raise the city to the ground. Well, then what else might have happened? Well, Jehoiakim and the queen mother march out to surrender and to give themselves up for the sake of sparing the city. This is a possible explanation of the actions that are involved in this event, at this time when uh, Nebuchadnezzar surrounds the city uh, for the second time. Perhaps Jehoiakim is moved to avoid the fate of his father. Perhaps he marches out because he knows he was assassinated and he knows he had received an ignominious burial and he doesn't want to be treated in the same way. So by placating Nebuchadnezzar and self-surrender along with the queen mother, he buys off the city, and he buys off his own life and the life of his mother and those that march out along with him, as Jeremiah 29, 2 indicates. Now, I admit there's a certain amount of speculation here, but nonetheless, we are left to wonder why it is that Nebuchadnezzar would spare the successive king when the father had rebelled against him. Why he would Look, overlook the fact that they had entered into an entente with Egypt in order to throw off the Babylonian yoke. Keep in mind that these ancient empires are not known for their mercy and patience and steadfastness. They are ruthless and brutal. Well, let's take a look at Jeremiah 22 again. We looked at that the last time when we talked about Jehoahaz and Shalom in verses 10 to 12. But we're going to look at verses 24 to 30 of Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22, verses 24 to 30. Loretta, do you have them? All right, would you read the whole section for us? And as she reads, would you pay attention to how this narrative is unfolding? 
24 through 30. As I live, declares the Lord, even now Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, wore a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off, and I shall give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I shall hurl you and your mother, who bore you, into another country, where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, shattered jar, or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they have not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. In verse 30, the prophet says, write this man down childless. What man, okay? Coniah. Coniah, who is also... Jehoiakim, by the chinny chin chin, yes. Alright. Now, what land in verse 27 are they going to be carried away to? Terry? They're going to be carried away to Babylon. Who is the mother in verse 26? Anyone? It's Jehoiakim's mother. This is the queen mother of Jehoiakim. All right, so this story is telling you, Jeremiah is telling you the story of what happens to Jehoiakim. He's telling it once again of how he went out and surrendered, how he's going to be carried off into Babylon. And notice in verse 30 that no man of his descendants will sit on the throne of David. Jehoiakim died in Babylon in exile without issue. Without issue, with no children, let alone a son to carry on the name of the kingdom of Judah. Name him childless. Write him down childless. The end of the line of David in terms of physical descent and sitting on a physical throne in Jerusalem is at hand. Jeremiah records it here as he projects the sad and uh, ignominious end of the captivity of Jehoiakim and his mother. One final note. The two, kingdom, the two kings rather, of Judah, deposed by foreign rulers, Reign in Jerusalem for only three months each. Jehoahaz, or Shalom, who is removed by Pharaoh Necho in 609, 2 Kings 23, verse 31. You don't need to turn to it. I'll read it very quickly. 2 Kings 23, 31. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Coniah or Jeconiah removed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon in 597, 2 Kings 24, verse 8. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Notice the pattern. 
both kings deposed or removed from the throne by Necho in the first case and by Nebuchadnezzar in the second case ruled for only three months each. And furthermore, both of those Judean kings died in exile. Jehoahaz or Shalom died in Egypt. Jehoiakim died in Babylon. They will never return to the land of their birth. They mark the vanguard in this narrative drama of the era of the prophet Jeremiah. They mark the vanguard of those who will go down to Egypt and never return, and those who will go off to Babylon never to return. They are the vanguard of the future, the future deportation and death of Judah in exile. There is finality to this judgment of captivity, deportation, and exile, which displaces its victims from the city of God, from the land of God, from God himself, who characterizes them as evildoers in the sight of the Lord. 2 Kings 33, 2 Kings 23, 32, and 24, 9. Parallel to Second Chronicles 36, 14 to 16. For both of these kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. Both Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim, even though they reigned only three months, they did only evil in the sight of the Lord. And were deported, deposed, and died never to see the land of their birth and the land of promise again. Well, as if Nebuchadnezzar hadn't delivered enough of a statement to Jerusalem and Judah on two occasions, 605 B.C., Daniel into captivity, 597 B.C., Ezekiel into captivity, along with Jehoiakim. Map number six outlines the third and final siege of Jerusalem by the army of Nebuchadnezzar. Let's turn to Jeremiah 52, verse 3. Jeremiah 52, verse 3. This is a parallel passage to 2 Kings 24, verse 20, but let's read Jeremiah's account of it. Cheryl, do you have it? Jeremiah 52, verse 3. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened that to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end he thrust them from his presence. Now Zedekiah rebellions king of Babylon. Thank you very much. This is the final rebellion of the kingdom of Jerusalem and Judah, and God cast it out from his presence, as the text indicated, on account of his anger against the people and the nation. And King Zedekiah brought it on by his rebellion against the king of Babylon. So once again, as in the case of Jehoiakim in 597, so in 586, Zedekiah rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. We may ask then, why did Zedekiah rebel against the king of Babylon, knowing full well, since he had been placed on the throne of Judah by that very king of Babylon, 
Why did Zedekiah rebel against the man who had put him on the throne? What induced him to do what his father before him, or his, rather his, uh, his uh, uncle before him had done? Because Zedekiah is a son of Josiah, as Jehoiakim is a son of Josiah. Well, let's take a look at Ezekiel 17. Ezekiel 17, verses 15 and 16. Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 15 and 17. Frank, do you have that? The king rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt to get horses and a large army. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Will he break this the treaty and yet escape? As surely as I live, declares the sovereign. Back to, oh, just to 17. Skip verse 16. Thank you. Just verse 17. Go ahead, Frank. Continue reading, but read verse 17. Don't read verse 16. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great horde, will be of no help with, to him in war when, ramped are, when ramps are built and siege works erect to destroy many lives. Thank you. All right. Now, in those two verses, 15 and 17, notice that it is the king of Egypt who is going to be depended upon to come to the relief of Jerusalem. Pharaoh and his mighty army will, in fact, come to into uh, Palestine in an attempt to relieve the siege of Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar lays uh, around the city in 586 B.C. You can see that on your map, map number six. You'll see the arrow just below the name Philistine, uh, which has a little box above the H, and the raising of the Chaldean siege of Jerusalem upon the approach of the army of Egypt. Why did this Egyptian army come to Jerusalem in 586? Because, as Ezekiel tells you, (coughs) Zedekiah had sent envoys to Egypt in order to uh, induce the Egyptians to join an alliance with him so that he could throw off the rule of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It's the same thing that Jehoiakim had tried to do in 597. So uh, Zedekiah is doing the same thing again. It's It's as if they cannot learn their lesson. But why wait 10 years? Why wait 10 years to try what the former king of Jerusalem tried and didn't get away with? Well, the answer is in your handout uh, under the page uh, which is headed Contest with Egypt. And you will notice if you find that page that in 589 B.C. Pharaoh Semeticus II died and was succeeded by Pharaoh Hophra, a fellow also called a priest by the Greeks. You have his picture in your uh, group of handouts. Uh, You have this picture of Hophra or Prias. You don't have a picture of Semeticus II because none survives. But this is what induced Zedekiah to try what had failed when Jehoiakim tried it in 597. 
the transition from Semeticus II to Pharaoh Hophra. And with that transition in leadership in Egypt, Zedekiah says, I'll send envoys down to the new king and I will ingratiate myself to him in order to induce him to join me in an alliance of rebellion against the king of Babylon. After all, he's still wet behind the ears. After all, he may be interested in expanding his own empire, pushing his own borders back to the Euphrates River like Nico II before him. Perhaps he has visions of grandeur, and I can induce him to join me in throwing off Babylon's power and, and uh, iron grasp upon my nation as well as his border. And so that's what Ezekiel is suggesting here. And your map number six shows how Pharaoh Hophra had marched out of Egypt and how Nebuchadnezzar lifted the siege of Jerusalem. In other words, he turned his army away from Jerusalem. That is, he left a skeleton crew to keep the city surrounded. But he took the mass of his army and confronted Hophra as he came out of Egypt along the Gaza Strip. And you can see that arrow. They met somewhere near Raphia and Nebuchadnezzar decimated the Egyptians and drove them back across the Sinai into Egypt and they never came out again. This this collusion then between Judah and Egypt fails miserably again. And if you read through the book of Jeremiah, you will note that the prophet over and over again tells the kings of Judah not to trust in the Egyptians. In other words, Jeremiah had an understanding of foreign policy, uh, not only by direct divine inspiration, but by just common sense. Why are you going to make up an alliance with Egypt? Egypt isn't the king of the world. Babylon is. As soon as you make up an alliance with Egypt, who's going to be knocking on your door? The king of the world is going to be knocking on your door. Nebuchadnezzar is not going to lay down and let this happen. What are you doing, Jehoiakim? You're endangering your whole nation. You're endangering your people. You're endangering the citizens of the land. What are you doing, stupid Zedekiah? You're supposed to be a smart king. You're not very smart. You're going to bring death upon this whole nation. You're not. You're playing with fire here. Nebuchadnezzar is no dummy. He doesn't rule the world because he doesn't have an army strong enough to capture your city and squash you. So what are you playing footsie with the Egyptian for? Well... Jeremiah, when he said that, wasn't very popular. In fact, they tried to kill him. All right, well, this is the the large picture uh, behind this uh, incursion, not only of Nebuchadnezzar coming from the north, but the Egyptians coming up from the south. And the result, of course, as Ezekiel and Jeremiah warned Zedekiah, was destruction and raising of the temple to the ground. All right, let's take a look at Jeremiah chapter 37, verses 5, 7, and 8. Jeremiah 37, verses 5, 7, and 8. And here we have a review of what we just went over. Ben, do you have it? Jeremiah 37, 5, 7, and 8, please. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 37. (laughs) I feel better. (laughs) This is what what we used to call in InterVarsity and Young Youth for Christ. This is a sword drill. 
Jeremiah 37, verse 5, 7, and 8. Meanwhile, Pharaoh's army had set out from Egypt. And then the Chaldeans, who had been besieging Jerusalem, heard the report about them. They lifted the siege from Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus you are to say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come out for your assistance, is going to return to its own land of Egypt. <coughs> the Chaldeans shall return and fight against this city, and they will capture it and burn it with fire. And who is the king of Judah in verse 7? Zedekiah. Zedekiah, right. So there's Jeremiah's description of this event which we just reviewed. And who is this Pharaoh? Let's turn to Jeremiah 44, verse 30. Jeremiah 44, verse 30. Harriet, do you have it? Uh, this is what the Lord said. I am going to hand Pharaoh Hophra. Hophra. Hophra king of Egypt over to his enemies who seek his life, just as I handed Zedekiah, king of Judah, over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the enemy who was seeking his life. There's the name of the Pharaoh who came out to relieve Zedekiah, and notice what Jeremiah prophesies. Prophesies that the same thing is going to happen to him that it happened to Zedekiah, namely he's going to be handed over into the hand of his own enemies. But here in the scriptures you have the name of that Pharaoh behind this uh, attempt to relieve the siege. He is the Pharaoh, from, according to Ezekiel 17, to whom Zedekiah sent envoys to try to produce this entente between Judah and Egypt. And so consequently you understand what that uh, apparently obscure verse and reference to this obscure Egyptian king uh, refers to. It's in this context of this final siege and destruction of Jerusalem when Zedekiah attempts to form an alliance with Egypt that will relieve him from the pressure of the Babylonian Empire. All right, now let's review briefly. 597 is the final siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Pharaoh Hophra of Egypt invades by way of the Gaza Strip, and Nebuchadnezzar lifts the siege of Jerusalem long enough to meet Hophra on the plains of Raphia and drive him back into Egypt. Jerusalem delenda. Jerusalem is destroyed. Destroyed and leveled. Destroyed, leveled, and raised. And Zedekiah, the last king of Jerusalem, Having betrayed his country as he betrayed his oath, Zedekiah sneaks out of his beleaguered city like a rat fleeing the inferno. But as he makes a dash for Jericho to the east, and you can see it diagrammed on your map, the Babylonians overtake him, his sons and the remnant of his army. His flight is recorded in 2 Kings 25, 4-6. Jeremiah 39, 4 to 7, Jeremiah 52, 7 to 9, and it is projected in Jeremiah 32, 4 to 5, and Jeremiah 34, 2 to 3. I want to turn with you to Jeremiah 34, 2 to 3. Let's take a look at Jeremiah 34, verses 2 and 3. 
Terry, do you have it? No. Who has it? Pete? Jeremiah 34, 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. You will not escape from his hand, for you will surely be captured and delivered into his hand. And you will see the king of Babylon eye to eye, and he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. Zedekiah was captured in his attempt to escape. Now let's turn over to Ezekiel chapter 12. Ezekiel chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Okay, do you have it? Ezekiel 12, 12 and 13, please. And the prince who is among them will load his baggage on your shoulder in the dark and go out. They will dig a hole through the wall to bring it out. He will cover his face so that he cannot see the land with his eyes. And I shall also spread my net over him, and he will be caught in my snare. And I shall bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans. All right, now the context of what we just read is in the beginning of this 12th chapter of Ezekiel, a symbolic act of the prophet himself. Now, we've talked about prophetic symbolic acts in our first lecture on Jeremiah. We talked about Jeremiah's prophetic symbolic acts. But in this chapter, at the beginning of it, Ezekiel is told to perform a symbolic act. That is, he is told to tie a baggage, uh, a bit of baggage on his shoulder and dig a hole through a wall and crawl through the wall and leave the baggage on the other side. This is an indication of what is going to happen to Zedekiah. He goes out through the wall of Jerusalem carrying his, shall we say, backpack on his shoulders or carrying his escape baggage with him and dashes for Jericho, but he's captured before he reaches it and is brought to Riblah to King Nebuchadnezzar, where his sons are murdered before his eyes, slaughtered right in front of his face, and then his eyes are burned out so that the last thing he sees is the slaughtered bodies of his own sons, And as he sought to flee in the darkness, so darkness becomes his fate as Nebuchadnezzar puts out his eyes and sends him, Zedekiah, into perpetual darkness. He will be bound in fetters for Babylon, but his eyes will never see the land of the Chaldeans. As both Jeremiah and Ezekiel say, he will never see that land. Darkness Blind darkness and horror. That is the legacy of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Jerusalem. And so we have come full circle in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Full circle from 626 B.C. and Josiah's reign to 586 B.C. and Zedekiah's capture and the end of Judah and Jerusalem. The international shifts 
have played their part, and Judah lies in destruction. Any questions? You now see the significance of the first two verses, actually the first three verses of the book of Jeremiah. You're placed in the context of this broad international landscape, these international waxing and wanings of kingdoms, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Judah, Judah caught in the crosshairs of the coming and going, the pressure and the relief of the international clashes of the kingdoms of the world, and the final destruction of Jerusalem under the three major rulers, the three major dynasties of those last years, namely Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, interleaved with Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim. All right, so you've got the big picture. Now, with the details that fit into the big picture, and after a break, we'll now begin to examine the call of Jeremiah in verse 4 to 19 of this first chapter. Of Jeremiah chapter 1. And this is the so-called call narrative of the prophet Jeremiah. His call to be a prophet and servant of the Lord. You already know some things here. You know the date of this call. What is the year of the call of Jeremiah? That is correct. 627, 26. And how do you know that, Kay? Because you told me. Because I told you. <laughs> Thank you for, see, for being so confident of what I've told you. I, I, and his word is true. Because of the king. Was it because of when, when the king was king? Can you find that here somewhere for me? Oh, no. I'm just guessing. Well, no, it talks about... Um, the days of Jehoiakim from the 11th year, yeah, so. Where does it start in verse 2? Okay, I was looking at verse 2. Okay, in the days of, of Josiah, so it would be Josiah first. Correct. And what year? Oh, the 13th year of his reign, right there. And what was the 13th year of his reign? Again? 627. 627, 26. So we can date these verses from verse 4 on to the 13th year of Josiah. In other words, that's the note of, of his call when the word of the Lord first came to him. And now he's going to describe how God uh, made that real to him, how it made, him, made it concrete to him. So as you skim over these verses from 4 to 19, it's a style of literature. It's a kind of literature. And so I'm going to ask what kind of literature is it? What style do we have here? It is prophetic literature, although it's more narrative than prophetic per se. It's called, but in what form? 
You're close. It's a dialogue, isn't it? It's a dialogue. And who are the dramatis personae? What does that phrase dramatis personae mean? Loretta? The people speaking. The persons of the drama. The people speaking. Who's speaking here, Loretta? Who are the persons of the drama? Jeremiah. Jeremiah is speaking. Who else is speaking? The Lord is speaking. So, God and the Lord are the two persons in the drama. They are the two speakers in the dialogue. They are the I and you in this section. So, we have here a back and forth dialogue between God and the prophet. You can see it in verse 5. Before I formed you. Then in verse 6. But I said, alas, Lord. So, one speaking to the other. Now, this incident... Namely, Jeremiah's call is rehearsed in three other places of the book of Jeremiah. We're not going to look those verses up and read them, but they're noted there in your outline. This is the handout number three. In Jeremiah 26, verses 12 to 15, he indicates that at the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. So what would be the dates of the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim? How did Jehoiakim get on the throne? Who put him there? No. There it is. Okay. We just read about it. Yes, we just read about it. Yes. What country was he from? He was from Judah. Jehoiakim is from Judah. Yeah, but who put him on the throne? Not Nebuchadnezzar, no. Anyone? Not Hophra. Pharaoh Nico. Okay, Pharaoh Nico puts him on the throne when he deposes Jehoahaz after Nico has killed Josiah at Megiddo. All right, so going back to this verse, chapter 26 of Jeremiah, 12 to 15. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, that is 609 or 608, Jeremiah declared that the Lord had sent him to proclaim God's judgment on the evil of Judah and Jerusalem. In fact, in that section of Jeremiah 26, he said he had commissioned him to proclaim the destruction of the house of the Lord, the destruction of the temple. Now, when Jeremiah records that memory of what God had sent him to do, referring back here to this call in chapter 1, What happens to Jeremiah? He's threatened with death by the prophets and priests of Jerusalem. They threaten to kill him because he is speaking out of the call he had received here in chapter 1. All right, now in chapter 25, verse 3, he says that in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, what would the fourth year of Jehoiakim be? 605, 604, correct. 23 years after he had received his call in the 13th year of King Josiah. So chapter 25 refers back to the 13th year of Josiah, which is also in verse 2 of chapter 1, and refers to the fact that he had been active for 23 years. 
So we're down to 605, 604 in chapter 25, verse 3, and a, a retrospective, a reflection upon his call as it's recorded here in chapter 1. And finally, in chapter 36, verse 2, once again, Jeremiah mentions that in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, God told him to record all the words that he had spoken since the days of his call under King Josiah in a scroll. Record everything I've told you for the last 23 years on a scroll. And who wrote the scroll? Barak. Yes, Barak writes the scroll because Barak is a scribe and a friend of Jeremiah. He records those words of Jeremiah on a scroll. And what happens to that scroll? Ben? It's burnt. Who? By... uh... Jehoiakim, M, yes, Jehoiakim slices it up, chapter 36, this very 36th chapter in the second verse, where Jeremiah says that God had told him to write it, Barak comes in and writes it, Jehoiakim takes the scroll, slices it up, slices and dices it, and feeds it into the brazier where he's keeping himself warm, okay? So he burns it up, and God then tells Jeremiah, to dictate it again, the second time. And Barak records it the second time. At the end of chapter 36, we're told that he records all the words that had been burned up and then adds some to it. All right, so this incident here in chapter 1, which is the narrative of the call of the prophet at God's behest, dialogical behest backwards and forward between God and the prophet. This incident is rehearsed three more times in the book of Jeremiah. And notice, all of those rehearsals are in the days of Jehoiakim. They refer back to the call in the days of Josiah when it originated, but all of these incidences in which he recollects Date from the time of King Jehoiakim. Why? Why does Jeremiah refer back to his call in the days of King Jehoiakim and not Jehoahaz, not Jehoiakim, not Zedekiah? Why does he refer back to his original original call when Jehoiakim is on the throne because of the arrogant contempt with which Jehoiakim treated the word of the Lord the arrogance of this man to defy the prophet of God and to set it not the word of the Lord for places a mark upon the soul of Jeremiah and causes him to think back to when God had commissioned him to this work. In fact, when your life is threatened, you start to wonder whether you were really commissioned to it at all in the first place. And so these events, shall we say, congeal the remem- the remembrance or the remem- the rememory of that call that God gave him and Jeremiah has to remind himself 
It is God that called me to this task. Not the princes of Judah. Not the false prophets of the temple. Not the movers and shakers in this society. Not even the king himself. God Almighty who called me to this task. And as they harass me, as they seek to kill me, as they attempt to throw me down into a miry pit, I remind myself that 23 years ago the Lord called me, called me to be his spokesman. I submit to you that under the trial by fire, that is the only thing that will salve your conscience. I submit to you that in the furnace of oppression, resistance, and even outright hatred, the only thing that will save your sense of integrity, dignity, and inviolability is that God has called you. You do not belong to anybody else. Nobody else owns you. You are not the tool of certain power brokers in the church or in the world. You belong singly, solely, and solitary to God Almighty. And I further submit to you that with the persecution of the Christian church in America on the horizon, you had better be content with that because our day is coming. You were given notice of that day two weeks ago by the administration in Washington, D.C. Last week, they renewed that notice that they have given to you that now the the omnipotent state will tell you what you can do with your religious convictions. You have been given a warning. You had better understand what is at stake in November of this year. You had better understand it well. And you had better understand that those whom you know had also better understand it, including your children and your family members and your relatives and everybody else who is able to vote. And you had better not be sitting on the sidelines when that vote is taken. Because if you do, You will have allowed the state to tell you what you can believe, what you can practice, and they will have taken the liberty that the pilgrims brought to this country and that that constitution that was signed guarantees to you they will have taken it and ripped it away from you. It is midnight in America. And if you do not understand it, then just read what Kathleen Sebelius said and Nancy Pelosi said. Nancy Pelosi said that religious conscience was an excuse. An excuse. Can you imagine any American person saying that religious conscience is an excuse? That is how arrogant these people are. 
And that is how totalitarian they are. The only thing that's going to stand you instead, the only thing that's going to stand me instead, the only stand that's going to stand anybody instead in this day that is coming is if you are solely convicted that God Almighty has called you and that they can destroy the body, but they cannot destroy your soul. This is a matter now not of politics. This is a matter of life and death, ultimately. Ultimately. Well, back to the text. Now, we have a structure in these verses. So let's begin with verse 4. And let's compare verse 4 with the first part of verse 11. And do you see a pattern there? Robert? Yes, the word of the Lord came to me saying is the same in verse 4 and in verse 11a. And now to 13a. What do you see there, Robert? Same thing. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? One slight difference, right? Uh, No, not not from 11, it isn't. Yes, it is. Look again. They both say, what do you see? The word of the Lord came to me... Yes, New American Standard is much better there because it, it jumps right out at you. There's a variation in 13a. The word of the Lord came to me the second time, say. All right, we want to come back to that in a minute, but we have the same pattern in 1.4, 111a, and 113a. Okay, it's the same basic pattern with a slight variation in verse 13. All right, now what do you find in verse 6? Compared to verse 11b. Verse 6 compared to 11b. You see it, Ben? Anything that's the same there? Okay. Loretta? I said, verse 6, I said, remember this is a dialogue. The Lord came to me saying, I said, okay, verse 11b, I said, verse 13b, I said, said, all right, so the pattern is the same. The Lord, where the Lord came to me, I said, all right, now finally, verse 7, compared to verse 12. The Lord said to me, the Lord said to me, also verse 14, what do you find there, Ben? The Lord said to me. me. All right, so we have a repetitive duplicate pattern, okay? Verse 4, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me saying, verse 6, I said. Verse 7, the Lord said to me. Verse 9, the Lord said to me again. It's actually repeated there. Then 11a, the word of the Lord came to me saying, verse 11b, I said, 
Verse 12, the Lord said to me, verse 13a, the word of the Lord came to me in parenthesis a second time saying, verse 13b, I said, verse 14, the Lord said to me. Now, there's one other parallel section in this call narrative. It's verse 8 and verse 19. What do you see there? I wish you to deliver you. I am with you to deliver you plus the phrase declares the Lord. I am with you to deliver you plus declares the Lord, both in verse 8 and in verse 19. All right, now there we have the, the broad outline of this call narrative. As you can see, it falls out into at least three sections, three duplicate sections. But the variation in verse 13, namely the variation in which he says the second time or again, what does this suggest? Well, he says the second time in verse 13, what was the first time? A second time implies a first time, right? Well, then what was the first time? Verse 4. Verse 4? No. Verse 6. Verse 11. Verse 11a. Correct. All right. So why do we say that the second time of 13... Uh, implies that the first time is 11a because we're looking for the nearest or most proximate sequence of the phrase, the word of the Lord came to me. This means that verses 11 to 19 are set off as a first time, verse 11a, and second time, verse 13a, word of the Lord came to me. Okay. Well, the word of the Lord came to me again in verse 13 because it came to me there in verse 11, right? So we're setting uh, first and seconds uh, together, okay? That's a unit, verse 11 to 19. Now, there's something else that distinguishes verses 11 to 19. It's not only that verse 13 says it's the second time, which means 11 is the first time, but there's something else that distinguishes 11 to 19. What is it? The visions, exactly. The visions. Verse 11 is one vision, verse 13 is another vision. So this unit is held together by the visions that are contained in it. So 11 to, 13, 11 to 19 is a first time, second time, first vision, second vision. It's tied together, which distinguishes 11 to 19 from 4 to 10. There are the three units of this dialogue. All right, now the visions in 11 and 13 are empirical revelation. They are empirical revelation. What does the word empirical mean, Scott? It means something observed with the senses. Something that can be observed from the senses. Something that can be sensed. See it, hear it, taste it, touch it, feel it. Those are empirical senses. So this is an empirical revelation. Why? Because he sees it. 
It comes through the senses. Okay? Jeremiah sees these visions. Now, is Jeremiah active or passive in seeing these visions? Scott? I would say he's active. He is active in seeing the vision. He's the one that sees them, is he not? All right? So God shows it, but nonetheless he sees it. All right? So he actively enters into the visionary revelation. God shows him and he perceives. He actively appropriates. He takes the revelation into his mind. He sees it into his heart. He senses it into his soul. He possesses it. God discloses. Jeremiah possesses. God discloses. Jeremiah possesses. All right. Now, is there any other clue to this tender reciprocal act? That is this interface between divine self-disclosure and human visionary possessor. Is there any other clue to this tender reciprocity? God draws the prophet into the vision. He sees what God reveals, what God portrays, what God portends. He sees the prophetic mind and plan of God as a prophet admitted to the divine heart. And this active invitation to see as God's mind sees, this tender invitation is marked by God's tender solicitation. Verse 11. This tender invitation is marked by a tender solicitation. Verse 11. Harriet? What do you see? Jeremiah. He calls him by name. He calls Jeremiah by name. He tenderly names the prophet. He calls the prophet by name, names him personally as he draws him into the divine secret, names him personally and tenderly as he draws him into the divine plan, names him personally as he draws him into the divine future, names him personally as he draws him into his own heart. He calls him Jeremiah, my Jeremiah. He names him. He calls him his own. Do you see it? There's only one other place in this book where he names Jeremiah, Jeremiah. Only one other place. And so the personal name of Jeremiah in verse 11 sets this visionary unit apart from the other dialogic unit in this chapter, verses 4 to 10. All right, now, with respect to verses 4 to 10, is there, empir- is there an empirical act in that section? What does empirical mean again, Kay? With your senses. You can sense it. Is there an empirical act in verses 4 to 10? He touches his mouth. That's empirical, isn't it? He can sense it. He can feel it. God touches his mouth. Who is active, Kay? God. Who's passive? Jeremiah. Jeremiah is passive. In the first dialogical narrative, in the first dialogical narrative unit of this chapter, note the roles of the dramatis personae. 
God is active. Jeremiah is wholly passive. In the second dialogical unit, the second dialogical narrative unit of this chapter, note the development in role of characterization. God actively admits Jeremiah to his arena, and Jeremiah actively reciprocates that activity of God the Revealer by seeing as God sees, by actively appropriating what God's eye beholds. And God admits the prophet to his secret visions by uttering his name. Jeremiah, come and see. Jeremiah, come and see what I see. I will show you visions of the future. Jeremiah, my prophet. I have not only predestinated you, Jeremiah, to speak forth my word. I have chosen you. I have foreordained you to act as my eyes and to be my mouth to this generation. Your elective passivity in the womb grows to active synergy in eyes and mouth. Jeremiah says the Lord, you and I are bonded. We are united. We are joined as mouth to mouth and eye to eye. For you, Jeremiah, see as I see and you, Jeremiah, speak as I speak. My predestination and election of you as passive recipient is unto your active participation in my secret divine foresight and my hidden revelatory proclamation. I abound you unto myself, Jeremiah, both passively and actively. You are mine by personal name, by predestination and election, by active synergism and participation in my eyes, my words, my very heart. Jeremiah will see the present and the future as God sees. Jeremiah will speak the word of the Lord as God speaks. Gerhardus Voss calls this the divine image looking back upon itself. Redemptive History, Biblical Interpretation, page 292. Or in my words... Jeremiah, the image of God, mirrors the vision and proclamation of the God with whose heart he has been united by predestination for ordination and election. He who is elect of God has been joined unto the life of God and the very heart of God. That's exactly what happened to Jeremiah when God predestined him to be his prophetic heart as well as his prophetic mouth and his prophetic eyes. This union is complete. It is the whole man, all of the man, all of the person, eyes, mouth, heart, soul, all belongs to God. Before we move on, I want you to observe Jeremiah 24, verse 3. Jeremiah 24, verse 3. 
You don't need to read it out loud. What do you see? The name. Just as the other place, the only other place in the book, the personal name of Jeremiah is used by God. What's going on in Jeremiah 24? He's having another vision. In the two places in this book where Jeremiah is shown visions, God names him personally. The visions and the name go hand in hand. The tender invitation of God to let Jeremiah see as he sees draws Jeremiah in to the mind and eye of God by name. I know my own and I call them by name. Jeremiah, see those figs. Jeremiah, see that almond tree. Jeremiah, see that boiling pot. Jeremiah, I already see it. Jeremiah, come and see with me. Now, there are visions, there are, sorry, there are verbal patterns of repetition and similarity in this unit, verses 4 to 19, this call narrative. We have distinguished two dialogical narrative units based on the presence of visions and no visions. Visions in verses 11 to 19. No visions in verses 4 to 10. We have also distinguished these two units on the basis of divine activity and human passivity, and then divine human synergy or reciprocity. Verses 4 to 10 describe God's call of the prophet Jeremiah in its declaration and inception. Verses 11 to 19 describe God's call of the prophet Jeremiah in its confirmation or specification. And both of these units contain duplicate symmetrical assurances with poignant and theologically pregnant asseverations. What are are these poignant asseverations that are so tenderly emotive. They are in verse 8 and 19. What do we call this I am with you promise? I want to say protection. What do we call this, I am with you, promise? Ben and Lisa? Scott? Yeah. Amen. I think it's the name of your truth. <laughs> this is the I am with you promise. God with us promise. 
It's the presence of God with his people promise. It's the Emmanuel promise. Here is the Emmanuel promise to Jeremiah. I am with you, Jeremiah. I am Emmanuel to you, Jeremiah. From the time of your call, I am your Emmanuel. And so, Jeremiah experiences the Emmanuel presence of the Lord from his call to his office as a prophet to the end of his career. God never to Jeremiah, never not Emmanuel. From the 13th year of Josiah to the 11th year of Zedekiah, God never to Jeremiah other than Emmanuel. And so to you, in these last days, from the eschatological Jeremiah, the last to weep over Jerusalem, as Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem, that Jeremiah is Emmanuel. More than just God with us. He is God in us. That's what he did when he bought you with a price. You belong to him so that he could come in to you and sup and sit and delight your heart because you belong to him. He is your divine lover because he is Emmanuel. These dialogic narratives are ended or terminated with this Emmanuel promise. That is what eventually will carry Jeremiah through every trial that he must endure. I have alerted you to what I believe, and I'm not infallible, but what I believe is the coming trial of the Christian church in this nation. We must hold on to Emmanuel as he holds on to us. For the world will hate us as it hated him. I can assure you that the world will hate you for Christ's sake. And so, we must prepare. We must get ready. We must wean ourselves from this age and from this world so that our life is hidden with Christ in God and that is our sole and only hope. I do not mean to be alarmist or pessimistic 
but you realize the story of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, do you not? And you realize the story of the decline and fall of every so-called great land, kingdom, government. They do not last forever. And the United States of America will not either. Short of the Lord's coming again, a day of reckoning will come to us if he tarries. I believe we are on the threshold of that reckoning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your Emmanuel promise and presence, the very living Emmanuel, who is not only with us, but in us and through us. Father, make us confident, even fearless, as Jeremiah himself was, though inconsistently. And we confess, O Lord, that in our own time of trial, we will need the presence and power of your Spirit and the assurance that we have been called to be your own. No, not prophets, but your faithful servants, those who love you in sincerity and who trust your dear Son, your dear Son as Savior and Lord and no other. We pray, O Lord, for your Spirit to even turn away this which we fear is coming to us, that you would spare your church for the sake of your gospel. And yet, O Lord, you have not so willed in previous eras of the church's history. You have brought the church to trial and blood and martyrdom, and even today in Syria and in Iran and in other places in this world, our Christian brothers and sisters are being murdered. The political world takes no notice. The movers and shakers in Washington, D.C. seem to care less. As they scream about human rights for this group and that group and other groups, we Christians are brutalized. Lord, we realize that this blood is not shed in vain, that you will indeed turn the weapons of destruction of your church against her enemies, as you have done in previous ages. And yet, the times, the times that are before us are times fearful, times which are poignant, and times which may be bringing martyrdom. Help us. Help us to be steadfast. Help us to be faithful. Help us to know that we stand in Christ and upon Christ and through Christ. We can even look death in its face and say, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Hear our prayer, Lord. Hear it for Jesus' sake, who promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, though she must suffer trial until he comes. Amen.